to begin our worship time this morning. I am certainly thankful for Brother Evan's leadership and for our team uh, that volunteers their time and works so hard uh, to lead us the way that we do. I don't know if you know this church, but not everybody gets to experience worship like we do every week. And so uh, I'm extremely uh, thankful for what they do. Listen, I want us to continue our worship time in John chapter number two. John chapter number two. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. As you are, I just want to remind you, we've been spending some time as a church looking through the gospel according to John. The last few Sundays have been a great time in the gospel. I have certainly enjoyed it as the Lord has spoke to me. I pray he uh, spoke to you. We began our series by talking about the goat. Now, of course, we're not talking about a farm animal, and we're also not talking about the uh, greatest basketball player or football player. We're talking about literally the greatest of all time, and his name is Jesus. We continued our time by seeing the testimony of John the Baptist. We really summed it up with a phrase that should be the same for our lives, and that is, my story is for his glory. And then last week, we studied about those first disciples of Jesus and how they had the faith to follow him. And I pray that is true for all of us, that we have the faith to follow after Jesus. Well, by the time we get to John chapter number two, uh, it is the beginning of Jesus's public ministry. So he is about to do some incredible things as we continue to read through this gospel account. Now, this is what John will call the first sign or miracle of many signs. And though this begins his public ministry, this one is not exact. In fact, really just the servants and the disciples actually know what Jesus has done at this wedding that we're about to read about in Cana in Galilee. Now, if you would look at John chapter 2 at the beginning of his public ministry, I want us to read exactly what happens on this particular occasion. John chapter 2, we're going to start reading in verse number 1. Here's what John records. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out at the wedding, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. It's gone. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. It's almost as if she ignores the statement. Verse 6, now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, even the, uh, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. I'm going to repeat that. Manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We pray right now that you will use it to guide us to live in obedience to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As I was studying through this passage this week, I read about a family that took a big trip or took a trip to a big city for the very first time. They were from an extremely rural area, and they'd really never been anywhere outside of their farm. Now, after arriving in the big city, they walked into a large shopping mall, and they were amazed at all the stores with so much to buy. 
Before long, the mom of the family, along with her son, wandered off as they left the dad checking out some sports stuff at a store in the mall. The mom and the son found themselves in front of what we would call elevators. They had never seen elevators before, and so they stood in front of the, those, those doors and they stared at them wondering what sort of strange city doors might these elevators be. Now, shortly after, an elderly man walked up, got into the elevator, and then disappeared. Moments later, the elevator door opens up again and walks out a strapping young man. Immediately, the mother looks at her son and says, boy, father, right now. <laughs> you see, they, she thought that he turned into a, and then came out like a magic box. Okay, you're with me. Now, clearly, clearly this mother, this father, this son, they needed to learn a little bit more about elevators. We know that's not exactly how elevators work. Now you say, Danny, why are you telling us this silly story this morning? Well, it's simple. I can think of plenty of times in my life where I needed to, as I think of it, look beyond the surface to understand what was actually taking place in a moment in my life. I feel the same way about this moment in the life of Jesus and his disciples. There is so much more happening in this moment than simply a, a, a party favor offered to some friends when they ran out of wine at their wedding. In fact, all of the signs that Jesus will do in the Gospel of John and throughout all of the Gospels have so much more meaning than may see on the surface. Or we might say there is more than meets the eye, right? There's something else happening. Let me give you a couple of examples. In John chapter 3, Jesus will tell a man that he needs to be born again. The man's confused by the statement because he doesn't know how someone can go back into their mother's womb and be born for a second time. But we know that Jesus meant so much more than what was on the surface. He actually wanted to give this man new life. We learned something similar to this in John chapter 4 when Jesus is talking to a woman about living water. She wants to know how he's going to draw water from whatever well he's talking about when he doesn't even have a bucket to collect it with. But we know Jesus meant so much more than what was on the surface. He wasn't talking about the water from the well. He was talking about giving this woman new life. We see this again in John chapter 6 when people are wanting something to eat. Jesus tells them that he is the bread of life. They all look at each other wondering why in the world he's telling them to be cannibals and eat his flesh. But we know that Jesus meant so much more than what was on the surface. He actually wanted to give them new life. Friends, we could look at example after example after example of Jesus meaning more than what we see on the surface. In fact, he does the same thing at this wedding celebration. We might think of water being turned into wine, but what if Jesus once again means more than what's on the surface? What if Jesus intends to take something simple in order to teach us something special? As a matter of fact, I just want to give you an overflow of what John taught me about Jesus in John chapter number two. I want to show you some of the things that I learned from this wedding, things that I would say are beyond the surface. Here's the first one. This is groundbreaking. You ready? Hold on to your seat. Jesus loves people. Yeah, 
You didn't know that, right? Jesus loves people. Listen, I know this seems obvious, but you miss how John describes this if you don't look beyond the surface. Look back at verses 1 and 2 in John chapter 2. He says, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Now, friends, there's a ton of speculation on the numbering of days that John does in the beginning of his gospel account. Maybe this third day is a representation of a a creation story that John is building up from John chapter 1 through John chapter 2, a connection with the old story in Genesis and how creation was broken to Jesus bringing about a new creation and making all things whole. By the way, I don't know if that's what John is doing, but is that not true of Jesus? He is bringing something new, things new. He is fixing what was broken. Could be that John uses the phrase the third day to connect with Jesus's time in the tomb. It might be that he's symbolizing what we come to know through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We know he was in the tomb for three days, and then he conquers all, bringing us once again new life. Now listen, I don't know if that's what John means, but isn't that true of Jesus? He is making all things new. Now here's, the, here's what I hold to. It's probably just that John's referring to the fact that day one is the day that he started following Jesus back in John chapter one. Day two is the day that Philip and Nathaniel started following Jesus. And then on day three, they all go to a wedding in Cana of Galilee. That's probably a little bit more simplistic. But regardless of the significance of on the third day, John sets the scene by describing a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Now, there are three people or groups in particular that John would think about. The first one is simply called the mother of Jesus. We know her, not according to John's gospel, but others, that her name is actually Mary. Now, this significance of Mary in this account is most likely because the wedding is for a family member or a close family friend. Mary likely has responsibilities at the wedding, like most of us would do with a close family member or friend. She's possibly a part of the catering service or some type of hospitality. Maybe she's the reception coordinator, you know, the person that's got to cut the cake at the special right time. Whatever it is, Mary probably has some kind of duties or responsibilities to fulfill at the wedding. Cana's just a few miles from Nazareth, which would be a familiar place for Jesus' family, since that's the area in which he grew up. Now, there's another group that we find. It's called uh, his disciples. Now, this is probably the five that we read about just before this moment at the end of John chapter 1, and really it's probably six, because even though John doesn't mention his brother James, he found James shortly after meeting Jesus, and so it's probably those six disciples who were with Jesus at this wedding. Now, we know there's actually 12 disciples of Jesus, but we don't read about them until John chapter 6, and so that's why we assume it's the six disciples and not the complete 12. Nonetheless, we also find Jesus, right? Jesus is invited to the wedding. Now, I don't know if you pick up on this from reading these verses, but it makes sense for Jesus to be invited to a wedding. You say, Danny, why does it make sense? A, he created marriage. Makes sense for Jesus to be there at an occasion like a wedding. Also, I don't know if you remember this, but in the New Testament, uh, several writers compare the church's relationship with Christ to a marriage picture, right? The picture of a husband and a wife and their love for one another and commitment and devotion, that is the same picture of how much Jesus loves the church. In fact, out of this, but more marriages would probably remain if more of them invited Jesus to the ceremony. You with me? 
So Jesus is at a wedding. Also, I don't know if you picked up on this, but Jesus all throughout the Gospels is present at social gatherings of his day. I don't know if you realize this from Jesus, but he's always at parties. He's always at celebrations. He's always eating at somebody's house. He is always with a group of people. Why? Because he is super relational. Why? Because he loves People. As a matter of fact, listen to how Jesus talks about himself in Matthew chapter 11. He says, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man, Jesus, came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Could that not be more true? He is a friend of tax collectors. He is a friend of sinners. I don't know if you realize this, people, but Jesus loves people. That means he loves you and he loves me. Hey, if you hear nothing else this morning, can I tell you something? Jesus loves you. He wants to be a part of your life. Relationally, he wants to connect with you every single day. You say, Danny, I don't know if I believe that. Well, Jesus makes this even more clear in the next chapter when he tells Nicodemus probably a statement that you've heard before. Listen to if it sounds familiar. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus loves people. That means he loves you. You might have to look a little bit beyond the surface, but Jesus is at a wedding, and that's not what's important. What's important is that Jesus loves people. Let me show you the next thing, though, that John made apparent to me. Not only does Jesus love people, but Jesus can handle any problem. Groundbreaking once again. Wow, Danny, Jesus can handle anything? Yes, Jesus can handle any problem. Look back at verse 3. We find the problem. When the wine ran out, uh-oh, big celebration, wedding ceremony, lots of people. There's no more wine. The mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. There's the problem in this specific context. The wine ran out. Now listen, side note really quick, because I know there are several good Baptists in here that once we said the word wine, you ain't thought about nothing else since that moment. So let me just give a few clarifying remarks, and then let's just ignore it from here on out. You with me? Wine at that time, though not as strong as most alcoholic beverages in our culture, was still a drink that would make people drunk. <gasps> Danny, are you telling us that Jesus was at a wedding celebration where the main liquid served could get people drunk? I would never do something like that. Yes, for you. he's at a wedding ceremony where there is an alcoholic beverage. This wasn't simply grape juice. We know that from the context of the verses when the master of the feast lets us know later that they usually bring the good wine out first and then the bad wine out later. Why? Because once you've had a few of those wine drinks, you don't even know what the next few wine drinks tastes like. You with me? I don't know that, by the way, from experience, but I've heard that uh, from other people. Now listen, it's certainly possible, maybe even likely, that it wasn't exactly like wine that we have today. Matter of fact, some say that their wine could have been non-fermented, but we know that's not true from the context. However, some people claim that our wine today has at least 15% more alcohol than theirs. Others claim that what that really means is that it would take 25 glasses of their wine to equal one glass of our wine. Now listen, I don't know. All of that is speculation. Either way, here's what I will tell you. Yes, it was wine. 
our conversation ended to get sidetracked into an argument about the use of alcohol. Ignore it from here on out. You with me? Now, let's move on. The problem at hand, they ran out of whatever beverage they had at this particular wedding ceremony. Now, it could be could be that Jesus had brought such a crowd that was following him that the wine provided for the known guest list was exhausted. This might be why Mary looks at Jesus and says, they have no wine. You know what that would mean? It would mean that Mary's looking at her son and making him aware that it's his fault that the wine is gone. You brought all these followers with you. They drank all the wine that was supposed to last for the rest of the week, and now we have no wine. Shame on you, Jesus, right? That could be it, although I don't think it is, but it's possible. It could be that Mary knew if anyone could fix the problem, it was Jesus, right? Ding, ding, ding. We've got no more wine. Jesus can handle any problem. Now, we're not sure what all Mary had life of Jesus up until this point. He could have done miracles before this moment or at least extraordinary things that his mother knew about early in his life. It's possible. We don't know. Scripture doesn't give us a lot of context about Jesus's early years. Nonetheless, she certainly knows what the angel to told her 30 years ago. She remembers all the ridicule that she and Joseph endured. She likely wants the world to know what she knows. This is the Messiah, the Christ. It's likely that she saw the present crisis as a perfect opportunity for Jesus to burst onto the political scene, stir the people to action, and begin his campaign to claim the throne of David. Though, Jesus would do none of those things. Even some just simply suggest that at this point in time, Mary relied completely on her oldest son to provide for her needs. You say, Danny, why? Because most people think at this point, Mary is a widow, that Joseph had he died, and Jesus would be the main breadwinner in their house. Tradition holds that Jesus, Joseph died when Jesus was just 16 years old. Either way, weddings at this time were a little different than they are in our culture today. I want you, as you think about why is this such a big deal, I want you to hear about weddings in their culture. You ready? Listen to this. Marriages in the ancient Near East were arranged by the parents. By the way, let's pause there, students. All of your parents get to pick your spouse. I think I'm going to adopt that for my kids, by the way. They don't get to choose. I'm bringing it back. Anyway, they were arranged by their parents. I thought you would at least ooh or ah or something. You, you gave me nothing. All right. Marriages in the ancient Near East were arranged by their parents. A contract was prepared. Vows were spoken in the synagogue. Tokens were exchanged. And then the man and the woman returned to their respective homes. Although legally considered married, they lived apart during what's called a betrothal, which lasted no less than two months and could be as long as an entire year. At the end of the waiting period, listen to this, the groom would take to the streets with his friends, usually at night, in a torch-lit procession from his home to the brides in a grand parade accompanied by pomp and color and singing. It was a great festivity. After speeches of goodwill and blessings pronounced over the couple, the groom took his bride home where family and friends feasted for a, as long as a week. Now listen to this. The groom's family was expected to provide enough food and drink for everyone. Now process that for a moment. 
We might think of running out of wine at a wedding as no big deal. We'd give somebody our credit card, we'd tell them to run to the store, buy some more, and then bring it back. It would take them just a, a few moments to make it happen. But at this point in time, they'd have to find some grapes, they'd have to crush them, they'd have to let them sit for a minute, depending on how you understand the translation. It wasn't with just the click uh, of a button. Plus, their ceremonies were for a week, not just a couple of hours like our receptions today. Also, listen to this, in their context, this was not good for the start of a new life together. To run out of supplies for the celebration would have been extremely embarrassing and could even open up the groom to a lawsuit from angry relatives of the bride. Anybody in here made some in-laws angry before? Okay, I'm literally, I'm not, I haven't ever done that to my in-laws, but I thought there would be a few of you out there, but once again, you gave me nothing, so thank you. Now, also, any of us that's in charge of social gatherings and realize that we've run out of food or anything would be embarrassed that we were so poorly, uh, that we had so poorly planned for the event. I think about this all the time in my years in youth ministry. If there was one thing I never wanted to happen, I never wanted to run out of food, I never wanted to run out of drink, I never wanted to not have supplies. Have you ever been around angry middle school boys who haven't had enough pizza? It is not a fun place to be. I never wanted to be in charge of this because I never planned enough or or, or I always had way too much. It was super overwhelming. I never wanted to run out of anything. That's what's happening in this moment. But nonetheless, think back to what Mary did. She went to Jesus with her problem. Now, let that sink in for a moment. She didn't go to the groom or his family. She didn't go to the master of the feast, who, by the way, was in charge of all of it. She didn't go to the servants or to the disciples. She went to Jesus. Friend, let me just remind you of something. Jesus can handle any problem. By a show of hands, how many of us have problems? Come on, don't leave me alone here. Yes, every person in this room has problems. Let me ask you something, friends. Where do you go when you have them? Because there's nobody better to go to with your problems than Jesus. Not too long ago, I had a little scare with some medical issues, and I remember going to get some tests done, and I was worried and anxious. I didn't know what was going to happen or who I had to see next or what the results were going to be, and it was driving me crazy. And two people that are really important in my life, one's a close friend in ministry, the other is my wife, they both asked me the same question that I had a horrible response to. Both of them said, hey, Danny, have you talked to Jesus about this problem? And I'll be honest, I was a little offended. I'm a pastor. I am a servant of the Lord. Of course I, yeah, I hadn't, hadn't went to Jesus with my problem. Friend, I don't care if it's as simple as wine running out at a wedding or you were in the greatest storm of your life. Mary would tell you to take whatever your problem is to Jesus. When you look beyond the surface of this sign, you will notice that Jesus loves people and he can handle any problem that those people which he loves might face. But let me show you something else that John pointed out to me. Love people and he can handle any problem that those people take to him. By the way, he wants them to take to him. I want you to see this too though. Even though we do, Jesus works at his own pace in his own power. He works at his own pace in his own power. My problem does not dictate an immediate response from Jesus. By the way, in case you haven't heard this lately, the world does not revolve around you. The world does not revolve around me. Jesus knows 
better. And because he loves me even more than I can love myself, which, by the way, I find hard to believe, even though he does, and even though he can handle all of my problems, the way in which he responds to them at his pace and his power is totally up to him. Look back at verse 4. And Jesus said to her, she's just come to him with a problem, we're out of wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, like that comment, by the way. As a matter of fact, if you're a man out there and you've said that, only did it one time, right? Hadn't done that again. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, I know you're thinking the same thing I am. That phrase or that use of the word woman seems to be a little disrespectful, but here's the truth. That's not the context of their time. It probably means something like ma'am. You say, Danny, I don't know. You're twisting that a little bit. Well, Jesus uses it again in John chapter 19 when he's dying on the cross when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, which is probably John that's writing this gospel, standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. I don't think Jesus would be disrespectful to his mother ever, but I definitely don't think he would be as he's dying on the cross for the sins of mankind. So probably he just means ma'am. However, it is different than the word mother. A couple of people point out some significance to this that I think is important for us today. George Whitfield is one of them. Here's what he says about this word. He said, Jesus calls her woman, not mother, to show her he was his mother as he was man, yet she was his creature as he was God. In other words, Jesus wasn't bending to the will of anyone other than God. It could be that Mary thought whatever she asked of Jesus, he must do like a genie in a bottle. Yet that's not the case. God certainly wants us to bring all of our needs before him, even something simple like running out of wine at a wedding. However, we should never ask of God thinking that he must do as we bid. Herschel Hobbes put it like this. She is no longer to know the relationship of mother's son. Jesus is the Christ, and he has entered into this role. He is not her son to be commanded. He is her savior to be believed. How many of us need to hear that? Jesus isn't sitting up in heaven, reigning at the right hand of God, beckoning to the desire that everything Danny Boudreaux wants. No, he's the creator of the universe. I should not be asking of him to do what I should be asking of him to make me do what he wills. Amen? That's what's happening in this moment. Mary has to learn to approach Jesus like everyone else, as a sinner in need of a Savior. Their relationship has fundamentally changed now that Jesus is embarking on his public ministry. No matter who you are, there's only one way to come to Jesus, as a sinner in need of help. This is what the phrase, what does this have to do with me, helps us to understand. It's better translated as what does this have to do with me and you, or why do you involve me? Here's what Jesus is saying. His goal was to accomplish the will of his father, not to bend to the will of even his own mother. Picture the scene. Mary and the disciples have no way of really understanding what Jesus would accomplish. They would have him turning water into wine, healing diseases and sickness, casting out demons, ruling a nation here on earth. Now listen, all of these are good things, and Jesus work in our earthly lives through these types of means. However, turning water into wine, a problem at a wedding ceremony, was nothing compared to the work that he would actually accomplish in the future. Our perspective in the midst of our problem isn't the same perspective that Jesus has. The phrase, my hour has not yet come, keys us in on what John is wanting us to see beyond the surface. This phrase typically refers to Jesus' suffering, death, and resurrection. It refers to his defeat of sin and death in the grave. That time 
time, by the way, has not yet come. Now, we know from the text that Jesus doesn't reject his mother's request to fix the wine shortage problem. However, in this moment, Jesus is teaching Mary and us, by the way, something more. Here's what I want you to see. Jesus knows that Mary is only concerned about herself. She's talking about wine for, the, for this wedding so that the groom, who's probably someone in her family, and she could be the one in charge of it who hasn't provided enough wine, so she doesn't want it to reflect poorly on her or her family. She needs Jesus not to have his way in this situation. She needs Jesus to do what makes her life better. Let that settle in. How many of us go to Jesus with our problems with the wrong motivation? We're not going to Jesus with our problem so that he receives glory and honor. No, 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 no. We're going to Jesus with the problem because we want it easier for Danny, right? We want it easier for us. We want our life to be better. Even if the suffering might produce more for Jesus, we don't want that, Jesus. We want our life to be easy and simple and better. All she could think about was her problem from her perspective, but Jesus will always work at his pace and in his power. It's likely that Mary's motivation for his miracle, this sign, was all wrong. Not the miracle sign. Jesus longs to display his glory. The question I always have to ask myself is this, am I actually seeking Jesus or what I want to happen? Now listen to me, somebody needs to hear this this morning from John, just like I needed to hear it this week as I was wrestling with this text in my office. Somebody needs to know Somebody needs to look beyond the surface and realize that Jesus is at work in your life, even if it's at his pace, not yours. Even if it's his perspective, his will above your own. Will we trust his ways? Will we trust his timing? Will we trust his pace, not our perspective? Mary, by the way, seems to learn this after Jesus' statement to her, because look at verse 5. His mother doesn't argue anymore about the wine. She just looks at the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. You know what I think this is? She's not worried about the wine anymore. Whatever Jesus says and everybody in the room doing exactly what he tells them to do. Mary leaves the problem in the hands of Jesus. She may have come to Jesus first as his mother, but she leaves it in his hands as one who trusts in him. You know what Mary knows? She knows what all of us need to know, that Jesus alone has the power to fix any problem, even if it happens at his pace rather than hers. We may not understand the timing. We may not understand the way in which Jesus handles it. We may not understand anything at all. Now, clearly, Mary's referring to wine for the wedding, but her words would be wise for all of us to remember in all things in our lives. Just do whatever Jesus tells you, friend. Just do it. Jesus knows better. I can't think of any better advice to give to anyone. If you have an issue, do whatever Jesus tells you to do. How much better would life be if we simply obeyed Christ. You need to hear the words of Mary today. Do whatever Jesus tells you. Now look at this. Jesus loves people much bigger than just a wedding or wine at this particular ceremony. Because he does, he wants you, longs for you to bring whatever problem you have to him because he can handle it. By the way, he's at the wedding. He doesn't leave during the problem. He will be present even in the midst of your problem. He's not gone. He can handle it. But how he handles it is not up to you. It's not up to me. He works at his pace in his power. Will you trust his 
way. You say, Danny, why? Because listen to this. Jesus provides beyond our understanding, beyond it. I may not know why. I may not know why I'm waiting. I may not know why it's not happening the way I thought it should. But here's what I know. One of my most favorite statements in life. If Jesus met all of our expectations, he would never exceed them. Amen? I to exceed them. He provides beyond our understanding. We got to go fast, but watch this. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Now this is significant because the Jewish religion demanded close attention to personal hygiene. Mark's gospel gives us a little bit more insight on this, but the rites of purification would include washing of hands and the utensils that are used in these types of ceremonies. So with this in mind, all of these people, all of those hands, all of those utensils, there would need to be a lot of water. But why the state? about Jewish rites of purification. Well, we're going to come back to that and look a little beyond the surface. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. Now, the word fill here actually means to completion. Fill them to the top. That's why it says, and they filled them up to the brim. As much as they could hold, Jesus said to them, now draw out some water and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. All I really think about in this moment is that when Jesus told them to do something, they did it. He said, fill the jars. They did it. He said, take some to the master of the feast. And they did it. Whatever Jesus said, they did it. Listen, friends. We could learn a lot from Mary's statement about do whatever he tells you, from the servants' actions that they just followed, whatever Jesus said. No questions asked, by the way. They were simply obedient. That would teach us a lot about life if we would just be obedient to Jesus. But there's more. John wants us to look beyond the surface. Watch this. Verse 9. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Listen, it was a custom to serve the best wine enough, probably, you know, for whatever reason, you, you be the judge, wouldn't notice that the wine wasn't as good as it was when they first started. However, once again, don't get too Baptisty on me. Don't get caught up in the wine. The Bible doesn't condemn alcohol or wine, nor does Jesus condone drunkenness by turning water into wine. Instead, let's look beyond the surface. Drunk freely helps us to understand that John's purpose has nothing to do with whether or not the party is drunk. His purpose in the statement from the master of the feast is to suggest the superiority of Jesus compared to anything else. Friends, the master of the feast is talking about wine. But could it be that John is reflecting on the one that the wine came from? Could it be that John is wanting his readers to know that anything that comes from Jesus is far better than anything else that we could ever have? And we have to look beyond the surface in what's happening in this context. Coincidence that there are six jars that need to be filled. I don't. It could be that the number six represents incompletion, but Jesus is about to make all things 
whole. Do you think there's a coincidence with religious practices like the Jewish rites of purification? I don't. I think John's showing us that the old religious practice of external cleansing makes way for something so much better. This shadow of external cleansing from the law, a cleansing, by the way, that would need to be done over and over and over again, but never fully clean anything. I believe that that external cleansing is being replaced by an eternal cleansing that can only come through Jesus. Friends, I don't think there's a coincidence between the poor wine and the good wine. You see this? Listen, your life started out with what John calls the poor wine. But when Jesus shows up, he transforms your life into what the master of the feast could as the good wine. Jesus transforms it all. He provides far beyond what we could even ask of him. When we, friends, when we meet Jesus after trying everything else in life, will we be just as amazed as the master of the feast? Will we not too say, how could Jesus be this good? Friends, I love it. Don't miss this. I don't think there's a coincidence to filling these jars up to the brim either. Once we trust in Jesus, we will truly understand why those servants filled those jars to the brim. You say, Danny, why? Because the depth and fullness of the provision we have through Jesus is far beyond us, all the way to the brim. He will never run dry. Amen? Hmm. This is the kind of prayer that I want for my own life. Jesus, fill me to the brim. Fill me with your power, your work, your mercy, your service. I want as much of you as I can possibly have. Jesus to the brim. Friend, Jesus loves people. That means he loves you. And he can handle any and every problem and longs for you to bring it to him. Listen, he may not do it according to your will or your timing, but he will fix it at his pace and in his power, which is way better than what we could do because he provides beyond anything that I can ever even ask. Do you remember how Paul said this to the church at Ephesus? He said, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Listen, 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 listen. This miracle is so much more. This sign is so much more than Jesus just performing at a wedding. Listen, this isn't like watching the Hulk open up a bunch of pickle jars that none of us can open. He's there to manifest his glory to those who will follow him. Don't forget what happens at the end of this moment in John chapter 2, verse 11. Look at it, look at it, look at it. Here's what happens. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. Friends, he's doing it right now. He wants somebody in this room to see how great he is. He's manifesting his glory. And watch what happened. And his disciples believed in him. Listen, this is what John means at the end of his gospel when he said, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. You might need to put your faith in Jesus today. He can do it.
All throughout the gospel, Jesus displays his glory. Not everyone sees it. In fact, even in this moment, the servants didn't even see what was happening, even though they were there when the water turned into wine, yet his disciples did. One of my favorite commentary writers, John Phillips, he describes this phrase, believed in him like this, unreserved transfer of trust from oneself to someone else. You know who else talked about this? John did earlier in chapter 1, verse 14. Listen to what he wrote. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Friends, don't miss this. Jesus is taking something simple and showing you something special. What is it that he's wanting you to see this morning? He's manifesting his glory. He's showing you the one you should believe in, just as his disciples. Friends, listen to me. Do you know? You hear this morning, and maybe the one thing you need to hear is that Jesus loves you. He gave his son so that you could have life. If you don't know that today, I would invite you in just a few moments to come find me in that lobby back there and say, Danny, I want to know how Jesus could love someone like me. And I'll take my Bible, and I'll tell you what Jesus has done to save you from your sins by dying on a cross in your place. He loves you enough that he took your death, your punishment, so that you could have new life. You might be here this morning. You need to hear this. Jesus can handle any problem. I don't care what you're facing. Danny, you don't understand. You don't know what I'm dealing with. I don't, friend. Jesus does. Bring your problem to him. You say, Danny, I've tried. Well, friend, maybe you need to hear this. Just because you want it to happen a certain way doesn't mean it will. Jesus will always work at his pace in his power. You do not, he does. Here's what you do. You trust that he knows best. Maybe somebody's facing something that is way beyond any of us. That happens a lot, but it's not beyond Jesus. Maybe you need to trust in his timing, his pace, his power, not your perspective. Hey, maybe you're here this morning and Jesus wants you to know that he provides beyond your understanding. You may not know it, you may not know why, you may not fully understand all things, but do you trust that he does, that he's the best one to be in control of everything? I could tell you stories just of people in this room who could pop up right now where they are and say, hey, I didn't know he was good, I didn't know what he was doing, I didn't know if I should trust in him, but I stand here now telling you, looking back, he is everything the Bible says he is. Friend, you need Jesus. How? How? Through a little simple story is he showing you something special this morning. A simple wedding ceremony where they didn't have enough wine is Jesus showing you right now. Friend, listen to me. It's not about the water in the jars. It's about you. He's not trying to turn water into wine today. He's trying to bring a sinner from death to life. It's you that he wants to transform this morning. Friend, it's not about wine. It's about your life. Will you surrender to Jesus? Let me pray.